Okay, well, Phil, um, as I said in the introduction, has been, uh, well, Phil and other, and, and Daniel and those on the preaching team have been going through a series in the book of 1 Samuel for some weeks now, and um, we finally reached that place in the series where David steps onto the stage. Um, this is um, obviously a very well-known text in many ways, so those of you who are joining us, I'm sure will find it relatively straightforward to kind of pick up the thrust of what we'll, we, we'll be looking at. Phil, Phil introduced the sermon this morning, just giving us a big picture of God's plan of redemption, um, starting from the very beginning. Um, it, was a, it was a sermon that was geared towards both adults and children, so it was quite interactive. Um, but Phil started by reminding us of that um, wonderful text in the beginning in Genesis 3.15, where the head of the serpent is crushed by the, the promised Messiah. Um, um, you, you have a little picture there of the gospel, which just grows and grows organically throughout the scriptures. And, um, and we were brought up to the times of Samuel where um, Israel wanted a king, um, wanted to be like the nations surrounding them. And many of you, if not all of you, know the story. And Saul has been raised up. And... Um, but Saul doesn't turn out to be the king hoped for, and certainly not the king of the, kind of the messianic promise. Um, and we see, don't we, that Saul um, is under the kind of fearful judgment of God, but then David is raised up. And um, I wanted tonight, rather than kind of going through every aspect of Phil's sermon, I th there were three points that really struck me we like threes, don't we? So I thought I'd take Phil's sermon and kind of mold it into a kind of three-point meditation. Um, but I thought it, it would be helpful for us to think about, and firstly, we have the, uh, the heart God sees. The heart God sees. And I want to just draw some threads. I haven't got anything kind of nicely organized. These are just meditations I had this afternoon um, before dinner. So... <laughs> Bear with me, it's not all kind of nicely tied up, but firstly, the heart God sees. Secondly, the king God chooses. The king God chooses. And to end, end with, um, just to think about um, the goodness of that king that God chooses. And these are things that, that Phil really, really kind of drew out from the text in, in some detail and depth. Well, to start off, the, the heart God sees. I'll say a little bit, then we'll discuss it and ask questions and so forth of, of Phil or the text. We live in a superficial age, don't we, largely? Um, much is judged on externals, isn't it? And I, I guess it always has been since the fall, but I, I was thinking about how, particularly for our children and young people, even more so when you consider all the allurements and pulls of social media... And, and I, I'm, I'm one of the few people I know that doesn't have any social media, but what I've seen is the way people present themselves. You meet them in the flesh, then you see their Facebook account, and they're not always kind of... We, we live in an age of superficiality in many ways, and externals. And I, I guess, as religious people, as Christians, it's, we can too fall into that, can't we? We can play at church, we can attend church and give off a kind of veneer, an external shell of who we are. Um, 
So th this is a deeply profound and applicable and helpful text. And there's so many threads that are woven throughout the scriptures that consider God looking not merely on the externals, but looks upon the heart. And I just wanted to look at a few scriptures so we can have a bit more of an overall picture of how God sees things. Can you turn in your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 17? Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 17. Just a rootus in Samuel. We're just really focusing on um, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Phil emphasized the... Uh, how much the word to look and to see kind of is a kind of recurring theme in this in this chapter and and also this this whole sense of rejecting that Saul has been rejected but David has been accepted um, for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the hearts so Deuteronomy 10 12 to 17. I'll read this through for time's sake. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. Circumcision was a, an outward ordinance, wasn't it? In the uh, Old Testament, um, an ordinance that in that, um, in that time in redemptive history had um, great significance and importance in terms of it pointing to the gospel and the cutting off of sin. But it's, it's easy, isn't it, to think in the Old Testament they were only interested in the outward form, formality. But yet we see in a book as early as Deuteronomy that actually what God's really interested in is them circumcising the foreskin of the heart. Yeah. Psalm 51, 6 and 17. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Please. Just verse 6, and I'll read verse 17. Uh, Behold, your del you delight in truth, in the inward being. The inward being. And teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 17, the sacrifices of God, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So here we're moving from circumcision and Paul, um, David is kind of reflecting here upon the sacrificial system. Again, an outward ordinance, um, not a bad thing at that time, a necessary thing in that time in redemptive history, but what God really cares about 
is the inward heart. What's going on inside? Um, let's flip over to the New Testament. Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We see this, um, this sense of the outward and the inward being totally incongruous, being at odds with one another. And the last one, and this just came to mind because it made me think of actually Deuteronomy. And in a, in a way, Paul is saying pretty much what was said in the times of um, Israel sojourning in the wilderness. In, it, Paul, um, in Romans 2.28... Two twenty-eight, book of Romans. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here, Paul is saying, it's possible to be part of the covenant people, it's possible to be a Jew outwardly, but the true Jew, the true Israel of God, is the one who is a Jew inwardly, whose heart is circumcised. So you see again, and you know, we could go on and on. Um, so that gives us a little flavor, doesn't it, of how important it is for us not to be merely outwardly. Um, religious and how God sees things. I thought as well, thinking about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, well known text. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. This really makes us think, doesn't it, that God is the one who sees our hearts. He's the one who sees inwardly what is going on. And this should serve as a way for us to stop when we're tempted by sin, to think we have an omniscient, meaning God sees all things, and an omnipresent God, that there is nowhere we can hide. Just going back to the Samuel text, the other thing that struck me, it's a text we should approach with some care. And I say that because I've heard Christians talk about it in a way which suggests that God is interested only in the heart, therefore the outward form doesn't matter. We mustn't fall into that trap. I've heard people say, well, as an excuse for behavior or attitudes or outward comportment or, or, or uh, just 
portraying something that's sloppy, that's unbecoming of Christians, and say, well, God knows my heart. So I think it's, you know, if I came here tonight and had gravy all down my jumper and just my pyjama bottoms on and, you know, I had bits of food falling, but I said, don't worry, it's a, my God knows my, my heart's right. You would think, oh, no, that's not so. It's important that we don't do what's so easy to do sometimes with texts like this and run too far with them. Yes, God is primarily concerned what's going on with our hearts, but the form does matter as well because it shows that we take care. It shows that we're um, taking things seriously. So they're just some thoughts. Well, anyone else has got, got any kind of observations or meditations on that whole theme? Phil, I don't know if you've got anything you'd like to add. Create in me a clean heart, something like that. Um, I guess there's a difference between the heart of the believer and the heart of somebody who is not a believer, because we, we, God gives a new heart. But I don't think that the, the so the Christian's new heart is not the same as the the unbeliever's hard heart. Uh, but our hearts still there's a lot of stuff going on in there, isn't there? It isn't as, that everything is pure inside. There's a lot of thoughts and planning and actions, reactions, emotions and so on that need to be purified. Mm. And it seems to me, I mean, this, getting onto the subject of sanctification, mm. that actually growing in Christ means learning a bit about what's going on inside us and offering it to the Lord and mortifying sin at that level. Um, yeah, asking the Lord to search us and deal with our hearts. That's what it seems to me. I don't know what other people think. Mm. Yeah, so that, that's a very helpful point, Phil. And I think we need to be careful when we read texts like in Samuel that God wasn't looking at David's heart and thinking, this is just such a really good guy. And um, he's doing all these great works. Therefore, I'm going to choose him on the basis of what he's done. It's God who creates the new heart in us. Um, it's, it, it might be helpful to say as well, and, and Phil, this is something that you, you kind of help me to understand, that when the Bible speaks of the heart, um, please chip in anyone if I've got this a little bit wrong, but it's, we often talk about the heart in, as the kind of seat of the emotions, and you, know, you hear it a lot, don't you? He's led by his heart, but not his head. But the Bible, it's a different thing. We haven't got that kind of splitting or kind of, um, the heart, is it the entire inner being which would include the mind and the thoughts and the will as well as the emotions? Head and heart. Uh, the, the heart is just the emotions and the head is a different... As you just said, that the the heart is the place where deep um, thinking, planning, as well as feeling and inclining, all those things from the core of the being. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Should I have said that this morning? Because I didn't say that. I, I hope it didn't. Uh... You've said it before, <laughs> but I don't think you said it this morning. Yeah. 
My wife told me all the things I should have said this morning, and that was one of them. <laughs> Does anyone else have any insights or comments on that text that would help us? I, I mean, I think for application and takeaways, like I said, it's, it's, it's a searching text, isn't it? Because it's easy for us to present or project a certain image, and, and may we, as a church as believers, be the same as we are when we're alone at home in our room, as we are here. May we be people who really guard our hearts and look after our hearts and our inner being and, and, and be very um, people of integrity and recognize that God doesn't see things the way we may see things. I'm, I mean, an, ap an application could be, you know, I'm coming to church twice on a Sunday. Isn't that great? I'm such a great Christian. I come to the prayer meetings. I, you know, I, I know this theology or... And oh, yeah, I was just going to say, it's interesting that when David eventually arrives... Um, the comment is about his outward appearance. Yeah, it is, Jack. That's a, I thought that. And I was yeah. going to come to that in a little while. I wonder if that maybe has another meaning. And I was going to ask for a bit of help from people like Phil. Because I've, I've got maybe a thought on that. But yeah, it is interesting. It, it, it almost, at a cursory glance, looks a bit contradictory. You've said God looks at the heart. But then much is made of him being a really... You think he's, being made, he's a good-looking guy. Mm. I think it's the word handsome. Is that... So, but um, yeah... Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on the, the the whole matter of kind of God looking upon the heart? Yes. We've got a penalty. We seen it. So he knew that and. Acknowledge that he was um, fireable and he needed God to, to achieve that. And we all the same. We, of our own will, we can't do that, do that. Only by letting God through us, live through us, we can reach that, that state. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, thank you. And it's not just upon the point of conversion, is it? Yes. I think we should always be asking God to be giving us that clean heart. Shall we move on and just think about the king God chooses? Um, so Phil went on to speak about um, what Jack's just mentioned, really, that um, this is the choosing of David, the, the last brother that's kind of bought in, sent for and bought in from the field. Um, yeah, verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. I was just struck by that word ruddy. 
I thought, I've heard that somewhere before. I don't know if it's different in different versions. But um, in, in the Song of Song, I mean, it depends what your view is of the Song of Song. I, I take the view that primarily it's about Christ and his church. It says in uh, 5.10, My beloved is radiant and ruddy. Same language, distinguished among 10,000, and it goes on to say, his body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. But this idea of ruddiness, I don't know, Phil, whether, did you talk about that being something to do with, there's something more going on? I thought as well in, in, in Exodus, where the baby Moses, something said about God looked upon Moses and saw something about him, something beautiful. Is this just merely about outward beauty or is this something pointing to him being a kind of messianic king? Well, this is a question. Is there something about... Uh, David's family and perhaps Abraham's descendants that they do happen to be good looking because Joseph was good looking wasn't he mm. um, and Absalom was good looking I'm just I'm straining my memory now I, I think I think when do you remember when John Woods came and preached on this sermon he, he said it, it, it doesn't it, uh, the, the Messiah doesn't have to be good looking uh, but in the end, he is uh, something like that, and he, mm. I think he, he likened it to uh, choosing leaders, didn't he? They don't have to be um, impressive on the outside, but sometimes they might be. Redness, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. You have the picture of a kind of healthy, fit, outdoorsy type of youth kind of bouncing in with, you know, flushed with, yeah. But I thought, Phil, it was ever so helpful, you know, thinking about Isaiah 53 two, the suffering servant. And the, um, if anyone's got their Bibles open at Isaiah 53 two, if anyone would like to read that out. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Thank you. So am I right in saying that your emphasis by, by getting us to think about that, Phil, was actually Christ in many ways was very ordinary. He was not much in his humanity to be looking at. I think I talked about his incarnation, didn't I? Yeah. And the manner of it, not in a palace, but in a stable or whatever mm. it actually was. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes, that's true. Mm. 
But I want us to think a little bit about this whole matter of David being the king God chooses. And I just think there's so much rich stuff there. Um, there's obviously the whole thing of David being anointing. And, 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 we, and we learned this morning that this word anoint, what's the Greek for anoint, people? David. Christos, thank you, yeah. And um, it's almost to be Christed, to be anointed. Um, the oil that David was anointed with is symbolic. It's a beautiful symbol, isn't it? What, what do people think that's a symbol of? Or no, that's a symbol of. The Holy Spirit, yeah, this, this symbol of the Holy Spirit, which David was anointed with for empowerment, for service. Um, I came across a, a, a one writer was speaking about this, and it's a rather long, longish quote, but just such a great, great quote. The Davidic kingship revealed that the king was God's chosen, anointed, beloved, and covenantal servant. He did not attain kingship by his own initiative or effort, but was chosen by God. He was anointed with oil ceremonially and with the spirit effectually. The Lord was with him to give him power and victory. David and his seed reigned as the Lord's servant. Likewise, Christ is God's chosen, anointed, beloved, and covenantal servant king. So it's, it's a type of Christ here that we see, and, and Phil really um, reminded, reminded us of that. Um, so we're, we're getting a glimpse, aren't we, here at the kind of kingship of David, which points to the, the kingship of Christ. Um, but there was a sense in which Phil reminded us that David was anointed in his humiliation, in a sense. In his, he was a shepherd boy. Um, he was chosen not on the basis of anything he did. And, and, and Phil reminded us of how God can just use ordinary people. And I thought that was a very helpful point of application. It's very easy to kind of, oh, I'm not good enough. I haven't got this, this gifting or I'm not this charismatic or skillful or what, what have you. Or, but um, Phil quoted from, from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. This is a bit like sword drill, isn't it, in Sunday Club? <laughs> Who can get there the quickest? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Who wants to go with this one? Thank you, Mark. I'm ever so glad that the Bible includes texts like that. I find that immensely encouraging. 
want to go on to think about um, this whole idea of David, David's kingship. Um, this is a crucial development in the kind of whole kind of flow of redemptive history, um, kind of God's unfolding plan. You think of the Davidic covenant. You think in terms of uh, the Bible and how you have these really epochal, important covenantal times in history. You have Adam in the garden as a covenant of works. Then you have the Noahic covenant. Then, th th then you have the Abrahamic covenant, which is, is so crucial. And then the, the, then the Mosaic covenant, um, where Israel is kind of constituted a nation, a theocracy. Um, and then you have all the sacrificial system and so forth. Then you have the covenant of kingship with David. Um, and then in Jeremiah, you have the new covenant, dawn of the new covenant, pointing forward to Christ. And um, so David is absolutely crucial as a type of Christ. And, and um, there, are, there, there are elements of David's kingship that we see echoed in Christ in, in quite a profound way. Um, he subdues enemies, doesn't he? He, he accumulates treasures through his conquests. We read about it in Chronicles, and then he, those treasures are dedicated to the temple, um, the later building of the temple. And he reigned over all Israel and exercised justice um, as the anointed king. Um, and this, is foreshadowed, this foreshadows the kingly work of Christ in that Christ rule rules over us, doesn't he? He has dominion over us, and he subdued us, hasn't he? I mean, that's part of becoming a Christian, isn't it? It's just, just that there's, there's an element of surrender, isn't there, um, to his kingly. And that's an ongoing work. He rules over his people. He leads them. He leads us into spiritual warfare, doesn't he? There's a sense in which, yes, David, the warfare was very much militarily and physically realized, but for us, there is a war. We're, we're, we're putting to death sin, aren't we? And, and there is a, David reigned over all of Israel, but Christ reigns over his church. And in a sense, we as his vice regents, if you like, are to reign and rule over the church. And so there's, there's this kind of parallel that's going on there. And Phil, helpfully, um, talked about kind of the empowerment for battle, how this anointing was empower, empowering. And does anyone remember the kind of looking forward, the kind of next big big conflict that David would need to face? Yeah, yeah. And am I right in saying, Phil, you draw that drew the parallel of when Saul was anointed? He was anointed for kind of military incursions and battles. So there's a similarity there. Doesn't, yeah. One thing with Saul's anointing, it doesn't mention the spirit of God coming upon him. Fulfillment with, with, with David, it was the sort of like a rushing uh, came upon him strongly. Yes. And um, we see also that the spirit departed uh, from Saul um, and an evil spirit from the Lord. And I think probably that doesn't mean God sent an evil spirit in a sense, but uh, more like the situation with Job that uh, God permitted. Um, as it were, that he, you know, gave him up to his own desires, which the New Testament talks about. Yes, yeah. So there's that, that aspect as well. So it, it's all in very interestingly intertwined. Yeah. Steve. 
Again, a cursory glance. I think it says somewhere in one, some of the latter chapters where it says something along the lines of the spirit was not. And you can read that and think, oh, is that saying that the spirit, well, the spirit was clearly active and working, but in shadow form, in types and anointing kings, uh, prophets, priests, but in terms of the fullness and the kind of expansiveness of the outpouring of the spirit in that time in redemptive history, it hadn't come as it does in Acts 2. I don't know, Phil, or anyone else you would like to add to that. Well, only to say, yeah, there's, there's a step change, isn't yeah. there, in yeah, the ministry of the Spirit. I think it's quite difficult to pin down exactly what the step change consists of, but you're absolutely right. The Spirit is, is, is at work in the Old Testament. Spirit at work in the New Testament. There's a step change in the activity of the Spirit when we come into the New Testament. I mean, you might, might say because the Spirit comes upon all believers, mm. and if you're not a believer, you don't uh, you don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. And maybe the way the Spirit can uh, use hindsight to point us to Christ's cross and all the fullness of that to encourage us and inspire us in a way the Spirit in the Old Testament could only look forward to something that hasn't yet happened. So I think perhaps mm. there's a, a difference in the content of what the Spirit ministers mm. in us and to us. Mm. Yeah. Isabel, did you want to say something? Yeah, what I wanted to say is that the big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is um, that God could remove the Spirit. Whereas in the New Testament, from the, from the death of, uh, from Acts, basically, and until now, we've got the indwelling which they didn't have. So God could remove his spirit, whereas for us, he stays there. He mm. stays with us. So that's a huge difference. Mm. Mm. Correct me if I got something wrong. But yeah, I, I, I'm tend to, I tend to be of the view where, particularly in places like in Psalm 51, where, 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 where it's spoken of, of the, the spirit do not flee from me, uh, that the idea of the spirit being removed. I think, I think a true believer in the old and in the new has the Holy Spirit. I think the language of the spirit fleeing from you or being taken from you is kind of more experiencing. It's a dynamic thing. I think, I think there's such a thing as, obviously we know in the scriptures, one can grieve the Holy Spirit um, and, and one can quench the Holy Spirit for the 1 Thessalonians. And the felt, I always liken it to like in a marriage, you're married, but there can sometimes be a great wedge between you and your wife, and there's not much in the way of communication, but you are still there, you know, so, yeah, I don't know if anyone's got anything to... You, you feel that the spirit is not there 
Thank you, Marie. That's, were, yeah. rather you can, than your felt communion with the Spirit yeah. can be greatly impacted, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. can I just say something as well? I think there's one contrast here that's worth noting. When the Spirit comes, he, he stirs people to action. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the point, whereas the, the evil spirit that came on Saul, I, I don't think it means a demon, I think it means he got depressed. Mm. Um, when that evil spirit came, it stirred him to inaction in a sense, he couldn't do anything. Mm. Whereas when the Spirit comes, it empowers people to action. Mm. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Just moving forward a little bit, um, so... Phil helpfully quoted question 26 of the Shorter Catechism. I thought it was Heidelberg, but it is Westminster Confession. Um, how does Christ execute the office of a king, just thinking about his kingly office, in subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies? I thought that was a great quote, because it's quite succinct, isn't it? Quite memorable and so true. And I was, again, I, just to quote someone I was reading earlier on, because of Christ's kingship and victory, we have liberty. And I was just struck at how does this, what does this look like on, you know, day to day? What does it mean for us on a Monday morning when we go to work? How does this apply to our lives as Christians? Well, there are a few things here that really struck me. Christ's kingship means we have liberty from the condemning tyranny of the rigor of the law. Isn't that wonderful? We're no longer condemned by the shoulds and shouldn'ts and the law. And, you know, we, we no longer have to live lives that are just merely moralism. We have that freedom. Christ's kingship and victory um, gives us liberty from the legalistic tyranny of man's judgment. When we go to work tomorrow, or we'll do what we have to do tomorrow, if someone's not happy with you, if it's, you know, unless it's for a specific reason where you've sinned or not done what you should do, but you, you don't have to be enslaved to that. We're not men pleasers. Um, the kingship of Christ gives us liberty from the enslavement to sin. Of course, we still sin. There's still indwelling sin and um, until we're in glory. Um, there will be, yet, we're not under the dominion and enslavement of sin. Um, we have liberty from the persecuting tyranny of the world. And we ultimately have freedom and liberty from the tyranny of death. This is what Christ's kingship means for us. Isn't that wonderful? And, and just to take it a little bit further, in a sense, we as believers are kings. We as believers reflect something in a faint way of the kingship of Christ. We should have rule over sin in our lives. Um, we should have a kind of God godly dominion in the spheres that we are in, particularly if you are a father or a parent, or even if not, if you're a grandparent or whatever sphere you were in, whether it's just yourself, you should have rule and dominion and kingship. Um, we should be equipped and empowered for ministry or for service of some degree, doesn't mean everyone's doing the same thing, but, um, and we all have, as has been mentioned, the anointing spirit, don't we? We have the spirit dwelling within us, so Christ's kingship is something that has a real application, so just going forward then, the goodness, the, the, the last kind of points that, that, that Phil, Phil made, I'm aware of the time, the goodness of um, David, um, 
Does anyone know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the goodness of David? Paul, um, Phil said earlier on, I'm emphasizing the word good. Talking about when David played the harp or lyre for, for King Saul. And I was really struck, Phil, when you talked about that just being a good thing. There was a goodness in that. Yes. 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 Because I found that helpful because, again, when I've read this before, I wondered if music's an incredibly powerful thing, isn't it? I think that there's something of that here. Music does have an incredible kind of effect. But I, th- there's more going on here that he was just striking some nice notes and the hairs on Saul's back of his neck were just standing up and there was a nice emotional feeling. There's, some, there's something deeper, isn't there? There's a goodness here that's, um, that's being spoken of. And I really appreciated the way that you tied that in with how the rest of David's ministry. Does anyone remember what Phil was talking about in terms of other areas where David was showing goodness and Saul was responding in a very different way? David was um, given, um, da- uh, David, yeah. David suffered for the, um, his goodness, as it yeah. were. Yeah, it's one of my son's favorite texts, that. I think he finds the whole fact that w- was, was, um, was Saul relieving himself in a cave or something. And I think <laughs> Isaac finds that really... <laughs> yeah. But well, yeah. One of the American translations or paraphrases or something says Saul went into the cave to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. But, but, but F- Phil mentioned a passage, I, I don't know if I wrote this down correctly, was it in 1 Samuel 19:9 or 24, 16 to 17, where even Saul acknowledges, he says, you have treated me well and I treated you badly. Yeah. And again, this is a this is just something of David's Christ likeness, isn't there? There, um, I think your words feel where there was a pattern of David doing good and Saul doing evil. And and the real king is a servant for good, but suffers. And you see that in David's life. He's uh, does it say he's kind of running around hiding out in the mountains like a partridge or something? You know? And he's. Uh, He's persecuted. He's on the run. Um, that still is like Christ, isn't it? I mean, because he was doing good all the time, and yet the, the Pharisees especially, they, they, they didn't see that, did they? It was really uh, quite, quite a similar thing. Um, can I just mention also one other thing? Um, it'll probably come up next week anyway, but... Um, when David went to um, bring the sort of food to his brothers, 
the eldest brother said, um, uh, you should be looking after the sheep. Why have you come down here? Uh, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. He had completely the wrong view of him, didn't he? Even though mm. he'd been there, at, presumably, at the anointment, anointing. But uh, people said the same of Christ. Yeah, that's a really helpful observation, Jack. Yeah. Phil mentioned where it says somewhere, I think, is it in the book of Mark, so the Gospel of Mark, somewhere where Jesus went around doing good, which, Jack, you've just mentioned. And even on the cross, he was doing good. They hated me without a cause. Now, I thought this was a very profound thing that I'd never thought of. Um, it, it struck me how Saul's spear, you were talking about how Saul went to kind of pin David to the wall, didn't he? When he was kind of having a... His, rather reads like a mental health episode doesn't it Saul that he's um, Saul's spear missed David um, but the centurion spear did not miss Jesus I thought that was really something so yeah that's really the end of my notes if anyone's got anything else they want to add or any other observations but yeah thanks Phil for that really helpful for us to remember that just for me, those three things really stirred me, that God sees the heart um, and, just, uh, and, and God's chosen king and all that that means. You could do a whole series, couldn't you, on that? And then the goodness of David pointing to the goodness of Christ. Anyone else got any questions or things they want to add or bring well, it just occurred to me that um, David um, was anointed and the Holy Spirit came upon him and that is how he was able to do Saul good who the Holy Spirit had left. Mm. You know, it, it was sort of well, what you've said really, but it just, you know, underlines the, um, the presence of the Lord um, does people good. Yeah. Yeah. it's kind of loving your enemies isn't it because Saul was certainly David's enemy and I, I thought you know again what does that mean for us how would we apply that as Christians well as Christians we're becoming more and more marginalized um, people are not going to be so welcome to some of your views um, you might find there are some times where there may be a little bit of um, animosity conflict difficulty and it would be tempting to look at people in the world that ostracize us and seek to not do us good to treat them with contempt or to see it in a very combative way but I think what what, what I got from this is actually we we need to be more like David don't we you know so I thought if there was someone at work that hates Christians and feels ill towards me because of my views on certain things what am I called to do I'm I'm to treat them with goodness I'm to love my enemy and that doesn't mean there's not forums or arenas where you can challenge things or, you know, for us to be walked all over. But I think that's a challenge, isn't it? I, w I wonder what would I have been like if I was David and had Saul in the position that he did? What would I have done? Well, Peter, I mean, Peter was cut off the servant's ear, didn't he? And Jesus said, put your sword away. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. See, I mean, yeah. is there anything dis- particularly distinctive about Jesus' teaching? Is that he teaches us not to hate. Yes. It's not that we don't have to disagree with people. Sometimes we do, but but we should do it without hating. Yes. And that's something the world finds well nigh impossible. Yeah. When you've got to look at what happens on the streets in in the last few days to know that whatever side of the political divide you are, that people will hate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's interesting when I, I, in my office I hear people speaking about people that have a different political view or even read a different newspaper, i.e., the Daily Mail and not the Guardian. <laughs> they'll, they'll they'll speak with absolute hatred yeah. about them, absolute disdain and bitterness. And but we as Christians should be different to that, shouldn't we? Yes. Okay, well, it's, it's nearly quarter two. Is there anyone, anything else anyone wants to add or bring before we kind of segue into some prayer before we close? It would be good to pray before we close. Are there any kind of matters within the church or anything?